Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We are in the second Sunday of at least a one-year study, maybe longer, on the area of discipleship. It's entitled Only by His Grace, and we'll begin to get into that theme just a little bit this morning. Uh, But if you have a Bible, Ephesians 2, if not, the passage will be on the screen in just a couple minutes. But by quick review, I want to remind you where we left off last Sunday. Many of you were probably here, some of you were not. But we looked at the, uh, the pickle in which the, the mankind in general, humanity, finds itself in, in relationship to God. And as I finished the sermon, I, I, made a, uh, I had a quote from a villain in a book that was later turned into a movie twice. The movie is uh, in the book or True Grit. And the villain is Lucky Ned Pepper. And when he knows that he's being closed in on, when he knows that the marshal is going to catch him, when he knows that he's done for, Uh, And his time of justice has come. He now has to pay for all the thieving and the robbery and the violence that he's committed. Uh, He looks at at one of the the people standing by who's offered him the services of a a good lawyer. And he says, I don't need a good lawyer. I need a good judge. That's where we pick up the conversation this morning. Lucky Ned Pepper really speaks for all of humanity when he says, I need a good judge. Based on Ephesians 2, the first three verses. In which, let me summarize very quickly, we find out two very important things that Scripture says about all of us, about you and about me and about every person that that lives or has lived or will live on this earth. The first is that we are spiritually as good as dead due to our own willful disobedience and our failure to do that which is right. So there are two strikes against us, so to speak, or two charges that God brings. God says, first of all, uh, I've given you a perfect world in which to live. I gave that to your original parents, and, and you blew it. You walked away. You rejected that out of willful disobedience. I called you to a loving relationship. I called you to a, a friendship with your God and your Creator, and you said, no thanks. We're going to go the opposite direction. Willful disobedience, which then later led to your lack of doing that which is right. So if you've ever been in a situation where you've said, you know, I could help so-and-so, or there's a little bit more that I could do in this particular situation, but I just failed to do that. That's the result of our sinfulness. But it goes beyond that. God even says that we have intentionally embraced a rebellion against him. We followed his enemy, and in following his enemy, we also follow our own self-centered devices. We're, we're in it for us. My desire is what is paramount. So that's what was established last Sunday. That's what was uh, put together in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as Paul begins to lay his argument for our need for a Savior. The question that we want to look at is, how does God respond? How does God respond to people who make those kind of choices and live those kind of lives? And so I've tossed the question out, uh, maybe in a little different angle for us this morning. Think about it. If we were in those shoes, how would you and I respond to people who we intentionally loved and they kind of spit in our face? How would you respond, or how have you responded, or how have I responded to a situation where I've really loved someone well? I've really cared for them well, only to have that love violently rejected. How do I react to that? Another way to put it was, how do we react to those who receive from us a gift of life, but use that life to actively hate us? Maybe you've done something merciful that's actually given life to a person. You've actually rescued a person, and they end up eventually your enemy. 
That seems to be a bit of a head-scratcher. How would you respond? How would I respond to that kind of person? And what was in the news this week was 88-year-old World War II veteran uh, Delton Belton, uh, Delbert Belton, who was beaten by two guys, and he died the next morning. And the reason why he was where he was behind this, this bowling alley, as it turns out, is he had a next-door neighbor who was a, a widow, and he didn't want her to walk home by herself. An 88-year-old veteran, he served at Guadalcanal in the Pacific, served fighting our country, and the country that he fought to save eventually kills him. How does that make you feel? I tell you, it makes me feel. I, I want to be judge, jury, and executioner. In my self-righteous indignation, I stop looking at myself and my own sin and my own culpability, but I, I can quickly judge someone else. How would we respond if we were in God's shoes? I think your response largely comes down to the, your character. What's in your heart? Who the person that you really are will come out in those kinds of situations. And we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, the very character of God and how he responds to rebellious mankind. Hear the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 on the screen or follow in your, in your own Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come before you this morning to, uh, to worship you. The reason we gather at, at the Bulldog Cafeteria is to turn it into a sanctuary not because of our presence, not because all the good people have shown up, but rather because we desire your presence in our lives. So we sing of your worth and your glory. We sing of, of the, the happy day we have because you have redeemed us. You've washed our sins away. Lord, we've sung of how we need you. But then in response to that, we've reminded ourselves we don't need to live lives of fear. And that doesn't mean that, that bad things won't happen or troubles won't come. But we're reminded that you have answered the ultimate trial that we face, which is the result of our own rebellion and our own animosity towards you, that you have dealt with that once and for all. So, fathers, we come now to worship you with our minds to understand that message. We can't understand it apart from you speaking your truth into our lives. So, Lord, we're not here to listen to man. We're not here to, to put man on a pedestal and, and, and idolize what is said by any person. Father, we're coming humbly, asking that you would, in, in spite of our weakness, in spite of the weakness of the preacher, that you would speak to every one of us. Lord, we're here, and you, you know everyone. You know those who are coming uh, longing to know you and, and desiring to know you. You know those who come knowing you for many years. You know those of us who are here wondering whether or not you even exist whether or not we should even bother with, with this thing called church. And Lord, you know what is most needed in all of us is a mind and a heart transformation that happens only through the Lord Jesus. So it is that for which we pray. Father, forgive me my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning by your grace and by your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, four observations for this at, uh, at, let me start over again. Four observations 
in this text that will actually get a little more expansive as we go along. The first two are going to be pretty quick, and the, and the second two is where we're going to spend most of our time. But we're going to go from God's character to God's attitude to God's actions and to the cost that God bore in order to uh, respond to his enemies with grace and with mercy instead of uh, with anger and with wrath. All of those words that I just mentioned will be on the screen. Uh, but they go in sequential order, and they go as kind of building blocks, so it's important that we take them in the right order. The first thing to which Paul speaks when he turns the corner and says, but God, and then he begins to define God, he speaks directly to the character of God, correctly, directly to that which really makes up the substance of God. And he says, but God being rich in mercy. In other words, God has had an overflowing abundance of concern for those who were weaker than him. When you think about an act of mercy, you're not helping someone who's stronger than you. You're not helping someone or coming to the aid of someone who can help themselves. When you ask for mercy, you're not asking a servant to give you mercy. You're not asking someone beneath you to give you mercy. You're normally asking for someone who is in authority. You've heard the term, throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You're hoping that the judge will be lenient, but the judge has the final say. The judge has the final authority. And so here we find Paul's first words after he's painted this awful, gloomy, but incredibly accurate picture of humanity, turning the page and saying, but now let's talk about God for a minute. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is that God, in his character, in his being, is rich in mercy. In other words, God is the one who has an overflowing abundance of concern for those that are weaker than him, but mercy also speaks to an action that is to come. Being a person who is filled with mercy means that when the moment is right, when the kindness or the compassion or the gentleness is needed, you will act in a way that is defined by that mercy. You will be merciful. When it's within your power to share a kindness, you naturally do so. God's character According to verse 4, is a character of mercy. But Paul also speaks, secondly, not only to God's character, but he also speaks to the attitude of God. But God being rich in mercy because of his attitude. What's his attitude? The great love with which he loved us. Now, I underscored that not because I wanted you to see that loved us like we're worthy of God's love. You know, like you look in the mirror and you go, well, of course, you silly devil, God's going to love you. <laughs> you're so handsome, you're so beautiful, you're so talented, you've never sinned, you've never done it. God is so lucky to have you. I didn't underline it because of that, because that would not be true. Any of us that look in the mirror and see that are either looking at someone else's reflection or in a serious case of denial. God is not lucky to have you and me. We are extraordinarily fortunate to be under the good providence of God's mercy expressed through his great love. That love is an action. The great love with which he has loved us. God didn't just sit back and go, oh, those poor pitiful folks, they should have never rebelled against me. They should have known better. I feel so sorry for them, but now I'm going to judge them according to what they deserve. God didn't stop the sentence there. God said they deserve my judgment. They deserve my wrath. We are under the wrath of God. Verse 3 of this passage makes that very clear. We looked at that last week. God would be wrong not to judge us and find us guilty. 
God would be ignoring rebellion and sin and evil. He would be saying things like what happened to the World War II veteran. He, he didn't care about it. That's okay. That's none of his business. That would be wrong. But when God looked and saw the brokenness that we created in this world, his action was based on his character of mercy, and that led him to love us with a great love. God's character is a character of love. God's attitude is an attitude of love that's based on his character. What did God do? What are the actions which God involved himself based on his mercy and his love? Well, look at verses 5 through 7. The first thing that Paul says in verse 5 is that he restored us to life, right? He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. That's resurrection language. That's new life language. Remember the the beginning of this passage. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but if you remember verse 1, as for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins. The first thing that God does is he takes care of the death hold that sin has placed upon us. He's removed that so that even though, yes, humanly speaking, we will all experience physical death unless Jesus comes back first, but our eternal existence, our new life is in Christ, and so God has gone back to Eden, so to speak, and he's given us the new life that he intended all along. He's restored us to life. The second thing that God has done, according to Paul in these verses, in verse 6, is that he has secured our future and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, I don't think anybody reads that this morning and looks around and goes, oh, I must be in heaven. (laughs) You're not in heaven, you're in the bulldog cafeteria. (laughs) Heaven's going to look a little bit better than this. Um, Somebody gave me the other day, I think it was was Thursday, Uh, somebody handed me two tickets to the Cardinals game in in a parking pass, but they were tickets to what are called the green seats, and I don't know if any of you have, oh, I got to go, ooh, oh, okay. Yeah. Some of you have been in, in the green seats. The cool things about the green seats are that, like, you can, like, um, eat yourself to death while you watch a baseball game. I mean, the, the, there's a restaurant, and there's food, and there's drink, and, and, and it's like, you know, royalty kind of sit in, in the green seats. And my daughter Katie's home, so I gave them to a friend who got to go and, and enjoy them, which I was, I was really happy to share. But... We look at something like that with anticipation. Say, oh, I'm going to get to go sit in the green seats. <laughs> That's how you need to look at this first. I'm going to get to go be in heaven. It's a done deal in the mind of God because of the grace with which he has loved me. Because I am now alive, because he has secured me to life, he's not going to leave my future in doubt. If you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, if you are in Christ, and we'll talk about that in this in a, in a few minutes, your future is secure. In the mind of God, you're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. God has not only restored us to life, but he's also secured our future. And one other thing he's done for us, he has confirmed our inheritance so that in the coming ages, that which is yet to come, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's an amazing statement. In the coming ages, God is going to show us even more. If you read the scriptures and you, and you, and you read of the grace of God, and you read of your own sinfulness, and you embrace that, and you go, yeah, you know what, that really does define me. That really, you know, that is Tom Ricks right there, dead in his, in his rebellion. That's, that's who he is. And then you see what God has chosen to do in spite of all that. You go, oh, my goodness, I, that's the best news you could ever hear. 
and you begin to rejoice in that. You begin to live your life according to that. And, and, and it's not that you don't have any problems anymore, but now there's a secure foundation. Now there's, there's the, the anchor and the storm. So in good times or in bad, your focus is on Christ and God's grace and mercy, and, and you go through life with a sense of joy and a sense of security. And you haven't even begun at that point to experience the immeasurable riches of God's grace. You've had like a little drop of it. Our granddaughter's in, in town. One of our granddaughters is in town, and, and if, if she's sick, you got to get like the little dropper out because she, you know, she can't handle much more than that yet. And let's all pray she doesn't get sick for the next few days until her parents come back because that would be really hard on my daughter Katie who's watching her. But um, <laughs> we've been given a little eyedropper of the grace of God. And I don't know about you, but I've had a few experiences in my life, not many, but I've had a few experiences in my life where I've been in a, wor- I've been in a worship setting. Maybe it's a corporate worship setting uh, or it might be my own personal worship setting. And I had one of those a couple weeks ago when I was reading this verse about the, the immeasurable riches of his grace. And I just stopped. I put my Bible down and I just laid down on my office floor and I just began to weep with joy because I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I don't even know Jesus yet. <laughs> I haven't even begun to touch the outer edges of the expansiveness of his grace to me. That's what's coming. That's my inheritance, not because I'm good, not because I got it right, but because I am in Christ. And he has infinitely more that he wants to share with all of those who call upon him for salvation. Um, One of my favorite comedians right now is is a guy named John Pignette, and he's kind of a heavyset guy. And he kind of makes fun of himself a little bit. Uh, but he's relatively clean, and, and he's pretty good-natured at heart. And he was talking about going to um, his nutritionist. And his nutritionist came in and, and looked at his file and seen all, all the information about him. And she said, well, I have really good news. The good news is you can eat all the salad you want. And he said, I, I thought about that for a minute, and I couldn't quite understand how that was good news because he, he said, I said back to her, well, but salad's not a, really a food. Salad's, salad's like what comes before the food. Salad's like a, a promissory note that when, when somebody puts a salad down in front of me, my body says, wait right here, something really good is about to happen. <laughs> and I'm like, I love him. That's, that's my story, too, as you can maybe tell. Um, but, but what we have in Christ is this promissory note. You think it's good now? You haven't even begun to, to know the goodness of the actions of God. So God's character of mercy leads him to an attitude of love, which leads to the activity of salvation, which is restoring us to life and securing our future and confirming our inheritance. The question is, how far out of his way did God have to go to make all this happen? <laughs> if God's really that rich, did it, did it cost him all that much? If you go back to, to verse 4 and verse 7, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Then you come down to the bottom, then in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. God, God's loaded <laughs> when it comes to grace and mercy. God's, God's like got 10 times more than Warren Buffett has, a million times more than what Warren Buffett has when it, when it comes uh, comparing to, to mercy and to grace. I mean, if you have that much mercy and you have that much grace, it seems to me that you have more than enough to share, so what's the big deal? I mean, if he has that much, he didn't go all that far out of his way. He didn't do anything really that astounding, did he? I, I've got a buddy who rides in the MS bike 
Marathon that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. And he sends me a little email every year. And I send him somewhere between 25 and 50 bucks every year. And, and I, I was talking to a guy recently who's starting a church plant in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And I went to his website. I look at the donate spot. I went to donate and I gave him 25 bucks. You know, I gave him enough to, to buy a couple cups of coffee. And I'm rich enough, so to speak, that that wasn't a big stretch for me. Now, I think my buddy who rides the bike really appreciates the fact that he's got a whole bunch of friends who kind of give that much and, and, and give towards something that is very personal to him. He has a family member that's suffered with MS. I think any church planter knows that, that a gift of, of $5 is a great gift. A gift of, of $25, that's, that's, that's a wonderful gift. Um, but it really didn't cost me all that much to give it. You know, we, uh, we at Green Tree, we either give online or we have these offering churches in the front and the back where we, where we come and we, we bring uh, our offering, and, uh, and I, I think Green Tree is a pretty generous church, and I, and I think Green Tree is a place where if we know someone has a need, we're, we're quick to, to reach out and meet that need, but I don't know that we've ever really had to bear the cost of something substantial. I, I don't know that we've ever really had to, to, you know, somebody says give till it hurts. I don't know that we've ever really had to, to, to think extraordinarily seriously about our giving in a way that, that is compelling and following Christ, I think to this point, it, it hasn't been easy, but it hasn't been hard either. And I think you look at that and you go, those folks at Green Tree are pretty loyal. You know, Tom's a pretty nice guy to give to MS. Or to, you know, and God's a pretty nice God to provide some salvation. And it didn't cost him too much because he's really rich, right? Well, let's go back to verses 4 through 7 for just a minute. And I want you to notice, and I've underlined them for, for our purposes this morning, how many times Paul connects God's mercy and God's grace and, and the secure future and the inheritance uh, that, that God has provided, how much he connects that to our connection to Jesus. He says that God has made us alive together with Christ, that he has raised us up with him, that being Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that he can show us in the future the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, everything we have, every good standing that we have with God, every experience of his mercy, every experience of his grace, every kindness shown to us in this life and forever and ever and ever and ever is because we are in Christ. You want to know what it costs God to provide salvation? It's right there in those words. It is only through Christ Jesus. It's one thing to have money or power, or influence. It's quite another to spend it all on a wretched enemy. Remember, friends, we're not God's friends apart from Christ. When God looks at us, go back and read the first part of Ephesians 2. Go back and read Romans chapter 5. While we were God's enemies, he paid the cost of our salvation through Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a very famous 20th century theologian. And in his commentary in this passage, he speaks to the cost that God bore uh, to purchase my salvation, to purchase your salvation. And he breaks it up into two. He talks about God the Father, and then he talks about the Son. God the Father knew what was necessary before the way of salvation could be made. He knew what it would involve for the Son's suffering, and he did not spare him, but delivered him up to all that was meant in that death, that cruel agonizing death. Now these are terms with which we have to grapple. And he goes on to write about the Son. We are not saved by a philosophy, 
Not some beautiful idea, not some marvelous fantasy or some poetic conception. See him in the garden, sweating in agony, and then the cross, the pain and the suffering, bearing the crushing load of the world's sin, bearing the wrath of his Holy Father, being made sin. That is the measure. The cost to God was everything he had. The cost to the Son was everything he had. The cost to you and me is free. The free gift of salvation. But friends, never mistake the true cost of God's grace who was born at the cross and the price of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't remember if I've told you the story or not, but I made a terrible mistake last fall trying to do something nice for my wife. I went, to, uh, I went to the makeup counter at Nordstrom's, and they love me over at Nordstrom's every time they see me come to the makeup counter because I usually have a couple of dollars in my pocket to burn, and, and secondly, I know nothing about what they're selling, and I'm the perfect victim for them. And so I was there one day, and uh, I said, I'm taking Cindy out on a, on, a, on a surprise date tonight. She doesn't know where we're going. I want to get a, a little something special for her. Could you pull her up on the screen? And, and she said, oh, well, see, she's gotten a sample of this and a sample of this. And these are really the two best, you know, new lotions and da-da-da. I'm like, okay. So we go over the counter. We get a box about that big. We get a box about that big. And I go, and I, and I buy them. And I don't really look at it. I just sign it. I go home, and I'm putting it in the cart, and I'm getting it all ready. And I mean, like a box that big and a box that big. And I think, I, oh, I better look at my debit receipt and make sure I see what I spent so, you know, I, I know what the budget is. And I looked at the receipt. Did I mention it was a box this big and a box this big? I, I said that, right? $645. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Did I mention the offering churches? <laughs> I couldn't breathe. <laughs> now, the truth be told, I had $645. I, I, technically speaking, I had the money, and it wasn't going to break me, Okay. But when Cindy came home and, and saw the boxes, she, her jaw dropped wide open. And she said, you got me both of these? And I'm like, would you like to pick between the two? <laughs> and, my, and Cindy, like, breaks out in a rash if she doesn't get something on sale. She's like the bargain hunter of the world. And she very graciously let her husband off the hook for about $425 of that gift. So we didn't have to go to McDonald's and get a happy meal. Um, I, I didn't know the cost going in, and that was foolish on my part for not looking at it. But once I saw the cost, to be honest with you, I didn't want to pay it. And that was my wife. That's the woman I love. And had she said I want to keep both of them, I wouldn't have brought it up again. And I really would have eventually been okay with that. <laughs> and I really would have been most upset with myself. But that's somebody I'd die for. That's somebody, if, if I saw a bullet coming, I'd, st I'd step in the way. That's, that's somebody I pray to God every day that I die before she does, because I don't know what I'd do without her. That's, a, that's more than a friend. Now, what if I had been asked to get something for a woman who was an enemy of my family? Somebody who hated my kids, and every time she saw them, said something evil about them, or actually tried to attack them physically? What if that was a person who despised Cindy and, and always gossiped about her and, and always 
um, looked for ways to make her look bad in front of other people? What if that was a person who actually lived for the purpose of trying to destroy my family? You said, hey, you got $645. How do you want to spend it on this person? I can think of a lot of other ways I would spend it. <laughs> right? God's cost is as immeasurable as the gift he gives. And he didn't turn his back on you. And he didn't turn his back on me. And unlike Tom, God knew the cost before he signed the ticket. He knew what it was going to take so that his enemies, so that, that, that people of rebellion, so that, that people who are antagonistic towards him, people who spend their lives making up philosophies to argue why he doesn't exist, people who, who kill other people who believe in him, could know salvation through Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I don't know why you're a disciple. I mean, I know the theology of it. I, know, I understand the scriptures. But I, but I don't necessarily know what the motive is in your heart. I talk to some disciples who are motivated out of fear, like if I don't follow Jesus, God's going to get me. Or, you know, if I'm not a really good disciple and do everything that I'm supposed to be doing, then, you know, the other shoe will fall. And I don't see that any place in Scripture. I certainly don't see it in this passage. And it's not why I'm a disciple. I'm not a disciple because I'm afraid what God's going to do to me. Because the facts are God's so powerful. If he's going to do something, he's going to do it. I can't stop him anyway. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. This is why I'm a disciple. Because he bore the cost. There's one person one being, he's, Jesus is a person, God's a spirit. There's one entity in all of the universe that looked at my wretched life and thought it was worth saving and worth giving everything to pay that price. Friends, if our discipleship is not based on grace, it is not discipleship. It is a work salvation that will lead us to be miserable, unfriendly, unjoyful, people. Is our discipleship based on grace? What will we do with the character of our God? His mercy and his grace and his love, his securing our eternity, even when we were his enemies. Do we see our own sin, as, as Paul pointed out in the first three verses of Ephesians 2, but, but as important this morning, do we see his response? And then the application is simply this, and and I, and I don't say for Green Tree to kind of put it out there away from me. I include myself in this question. Is there any resemblance of his radical love for sinners like you and me at Green Tree Community Church? Will you pray with me? Father, we cannot begin to express, to put into words what it means that you would send your son and allow him to die for sinners like us. Father, when we wrestle with it, when we truly wrestle with it in our minds, it's almost impossible to, to believe from a human perspective that enemies really get grace. When you could have just left us alone to die in our sin and judged us accordingly, and you would have been perfectly right to do that, you decided there was a better way. You decided there was a way of mercy. And the way of mercy was the cost that you bore 100%. Lord, it's such an abomination to hear somebody say, you know, God goes halfway and reaches down. You got to go your halfway and, and, and reach up. 
Father, forgive us if we ever think that. Lord, help us to understand that we're face down, we're spiritually dead, and unless you come and make us alive, there is no hope. But that's exactly what you do. That's what the cross was all about. And when you validated the cross by raising Jesus to life on Easter Sunday, you, you sealed our hope for new life in him. And when you ascended Jesus to heaven and seated him at your right hand and glorified him and said it's done, it's accomplished, now he is the object of worship for all of eternity, you sealed our journey to heaven as well. You paid the entire price. Lord, I, my simple prayer this morning is that in some way, we would reflect that attitude, that character, and that action to the world around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.